BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, your Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. I'm look, there's no no way to get around it. I prefer saying Georgianologist to Victorianologist because I can put on my Georgia accent when I say it, which is the bomb. It is the look, I, I don't know what the average age of the listeners uh, for this is, but when I say the bomb, I'm using current vernacular, kind of street vernacular, and it means something, uh, something groovy or hep. So when I say the bomb, that's just very current, or I should say occurrent lingo. Because look, my business is knowing trends. My business is knowing what the young people are saying and doing. And these days, they are saying the bomb, and they're saying it with a Georgian accent. So you'll routinely on YouTube or other MySpace, whatever it is, you'll hear people saying, that's the bomb bigoty. And that just means it's a cool thing. Anyway, that was a linguistic diversion when we have so much business to attend to today. I start today in a quandary because I'm in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. I do not have a cup of tea beside me because I have already consumed three cups of morning tea. And I know that at some point very soon, probably within the body of this recording, I will have to take a pee. But the question is, the question was, should I do that before I sit down on the Jack-Jack Memorial reading couch, or should I just endure? And I was so anxious to start today's episode that I thought, oh, I'll, I'll just endure. I mean, if Walton can endure his passage to the North Pole and his crew can see through this dangerous voyage, then surely I can make it through a half hour without needing to get up to pee. And I was excited to get going because we left last time with a double reverse twist with a thing. And, you know, that's just such a rare literary occurrence that when it happens, you get all all excited 
to keep going and see where it, where it leads you. And if you recall, the double reverse twist with a thing is our dear Frankenstein saying, and yet you have rescued me from a strange and perilous situation. You have benevolently restored me to life. Now, here's what you need to know about my Frankenstein. He is increasingly, and I suspect I will continue on this path, going to sound like my bad impersonation of the actor Christoph Waltz. That's just how it's going to be. And if you want to unsubscribe as a result of that, if you want to cancel your Patreon, I believe me, I fully understand. But I like the actor Christoph Waltz. I like the way he talks. That's going to be my Frankenstein. It's going to be Christoph Waltz. I know it doesn't sound anything like him, but in my mind it does. And, you know, who else's mind really matters here? Yours, obviously. But I can't see you, and I can't see your, your furrowed brows and looks of disappointment, so I just have to proceed. So he says, you've rescued me from, you know, you've restored me to life with brandy and soup. And we continue. Soon after this, he inquired if I thought that the breaking up of the ice had destroyed the other sledge. I replied that I could not answer with any degree of certainty, for the ice had not broken until near midnight, and the traveler might have arrived at a place of safety before that time, but of this I could not judge. From this time, a new spirit of life animated the decaying frame of the stranger. He manifested the greatest eagerness to be upon deck, to watch for the sledge which had before appeared. But I have persuaded him to remain in the cabin, for he is far too weak to sustain the rawness of the atmosphere. I have promised that someone should watch for him and give him instant notice if any new object should appear in sight. And belatedly, I feel like I have to interrupt here because I have in my mind what a sledge looks like. And I keep having this mental picture in my head of what a sledge actually looks like. And in my head, it's it's like a long sort of sleigh, like in Jingle Bells, right? It's just a festive sort of long uh, tracked uh, uh, conveyance uh, with warm blankets, and it's gaily painted on the sides. And whoever is in it, wh- whether it's Frankenstein or the creature, is on their way to grandma's house. But I feel like I should look I should get into the research machine. Let me just crank it up here and see just sort of what a sledge looks like. You know, I'm going to look up 1800s sledge and just get an image in my mind so that we can all understand what it looks like. And it appears that I was correct. So I just wanted to uh, double check that. So yeah, it's a, it's a sledge. It's a it it it's got runners on it and a, and a seat, and uh, everybody's going to grandma's house. Oh, I see. So it can also be a much more primitive contraption, like you might envision, uh, you know, a dog musher doing the Iditarod. You know, I mean, obviously it could be that, but I just wanted to reinforce the point because. You know, we're, we're, look, we're doing theater of the mind here, right? We're just painting pictures in our mind. So I'm going to imagine the way I want to imagine it, which is that everybody's going to grandma's house. And you can imagine it the way it probably was, which is a crude conveyance 
uh, like you would find, uh, you know, from the Iditarod, or crudely shaped. Okay. Such is my journal of what relates to this strange occurrence up to the present day. The stranger has gradually improved in health, but is very silent, and appears uneasy when anyone except myself enters the cabin. Yet his manners are so conciliating, 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 C-O-N-C-I-L-I-A-T-I-N-G. I mean, we would say conciliatory, conciliating, all right, and gentle, that the sailors are all interested in him, although they have had very little communication with him. For my own part, I begin to love him as a brother, and his constant and deep grief fills me with sympathy and compassion. He must have been a noble creature in his better days, being even now in wreck so attractive and amiable. I said in one of my letters, my dear Margaret, that I should find no friend on the wide ocean, yet I have found a man who, before his spirit had been broken by misery, I should have been happy to have possessed as the brother of my heart. I shall continue my journal concerning the stranger at intervals, should I have any fresh incidents to record. Uh, The letter is unsigned. So, right, he set it up. Hey, I need a friend. Hey, I need a friend. You know, this is just classic storytelling. Hey, I need a friend, but where am I going to find a friend on the ocean? There's no friends on the ocean. You know, maybe maybe there's a merman, but... I'm not going to find any friend on the ocean, and yet what should appear on the ocean but a friend, and not just a friend, but a brother of his heart. So what, what, you know, you've got a brother there. You find a brother. You've taken him into the warm cockles of your bosom. You've given him your soup. You've rubbed his uh, body with brandy, and he is so conciliating and so gentle that you cannot help but feel amiable towards him and love. So, great. He found a friend, end of story. But maybe not. Now, I should note that the beginning of this letter, letter four, uh, begins, remember August 5th, by him saying that it's very probable that you will see me before these papers can come into your possession, but he hasn't said why in this letter. I mean, they found you know, the the wreck on the ice, they saw the creature off there in the distance, but their journey remains undeterred. So why is he saying that she'll see him before she even gets the letter? That remains unclear. Nothing really has disrupted the journey. The journey continues apace. They are heading north. In fact, he went to great pains to tell Frankenstein they're heading north. So I'm not sure what that refers to. All right, so that's a question mark. Another mystery in our book of mysteries, in our compendium of riddles. August 13th, 17- We know that's a lie. My affection for my guest increases every day. Good. Lovely. He excites at once my admiration and my pity to an astonishing degree. How can I see so noble a creature destroyed by misery without feeling the most poignant Grief. Okay, Mary Shelley, I see what you're doing, and I like it. You're giving us more of the double reverse thing with a twist, 
right? Because everything that he's describing about Frankenstein, we imagine can be described about the creature whom we have yet to learn anything about. I'll repeat, he excites at once my admiration and my pity. How can I see so noble a creature destroyed by misery without feeling the most poignant grief? The thing that he has rescued, the thing that he has essentially brought back to life, remains in misery and grief. It is he, he describes Frankenstein as a creature. So, you know, we're getting the full karmic boomerang here. And we're bathing in it. We're bathing in a boomerang. You know, some people don't like to mix their metaphors. I do. You know why? Because it's funny. It's funny to mix your metaphors. Everybody likes a good mixed metaphor every now and again. Why, do you, why don't you mix more metaphors? We're stirring the karmic bath with a boomerang. He is so gentle, yet so wise. His mind is so cultivated, and when he speaks, although his words are cold with the choicest art, yet they flow with rapidity and unparalleled eloquence. All right, get over it, Walton. You know, it's getting a little, like, creepy. It's, a, it's just a little bit schoolgirl crushy. We get it. You wanted a friend, you found a friend, but just give it a breast. He is now much recovered from his illness and is continually on the deck, apparently waiting for the sledge that preceded his own. So this is like a week later after they found him, or, or maybe a week and a half, two weeks after they actually found him. Um, yet, although unhappy... He is not so utterly occupied by his own misery, but that he interests himself deeply in the projects of others. He has frequently conversed with me on mine, which I have communicated to him without disguise. He entered attentively into all my arguments in favor of my eventual success, and into every minute detail of the measures I had taken to secure it. Which is exactly what Walton wanted, right? He wanted that from the very beginning. Oh, if only I could, if I could have a friend to pour out my heart to, and the friend would then say, you're going to be great, champ. You're going to be just great. Oh, you're going to knock him out in the third round, champ. You know, that's all he wanted, and now he's got it. So, great news. Just great news. I was easily led by the sympathy which he evinced to use the language of my heart, to give utterance to the burning ardor of my soul, and to say with all the fever that warmed me how gladly I would sacrifice my fortune, my existence, my every hope to the furtherance of my enterprise. One man's life or death were but a small price to pay for the acquirement of the knowledge which I sought for the dominion I should acquire and transmit over the elemental foes of our race. As I spoke, a dark gloom, and he's talking about magnetism again, like he's going to make this great discovery that's going to what? I don't know, lead to GPS or some shit? Like, I don't know what he's thinking he's going to do with magnetism. He's going to tame magnetism, and then what? I don't know. I'm sure it's useful for something. I'm sure, like, when you understand magnetism, like, that's really useful to make, what, conductors? To make maglev trains? I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking. But, you know, he's full, he's grandiose. He's full of big ideas for himself. He's 28. You know, he's still, he's, he's got a young man's dreams and a young man's passion and we're excited and happy for him. Why not? Why not? As I spoke, a dark gloom spread over my listener's countenance. At first, I perceived that he tried to suppress his emotion. He placed his hands before his eyes and my voice 
quivered and failed me as I beheld tears trickle fast from between his fingers. A groan burst from his heaving breast. I paused. At length he spoke in broken accents. Unhappy man, do you share my badness? Have you drunk also of the intoxicating draught? Hear me. Let me reveal my tale, and you will dash the cup from your lips. Okay. Okay. Now we're getting into it. Now we're going to hear the tale of Frankenstein, because he does not want Walton to fall into the same trap that he fell. That same beguiling trap of glory and fame to supersede the natural world, to place yourself above the structures of the universe. He sees where this is going. He sees the doomed ghost ship that he is on. And I wish my Christoph Waltz was better because I think Frankenstein's going to do a lot of talking. Uh, you know, and that could be a problem for me, for you. Because you're going to be like, that doesn't sound like Christoph Waltz. Let's just imagine that it's not Christoph Waltz. It's just Frankenstein, okay? It's a unique, mangled accent that is the result of years spent in different nations uh, all over the globe. In Frankenstein's case, uh, a little Austria, a little Germany, a little Romania, some England, some Brussels, and let's say a touch of Argentina. That explains his weird, wavering accent to you, listener. And not the fact that I can't do a Christoph Waltz impersonation. And now let's take a little break. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader and we're back so we just said i'm going to tell you my story and dude you are gonna shit a brick such words you may imagine, strongly excited my curiosity. But the paroxysm, I've never known how to pronounce that word, research machine. Let's look at how to pronounce paroxysm. 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 She's got such a nice voice. Paroxysm. 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 Okay. And just let's just, I mean, we're here. Let's just get the, let's just get the right definition. Uh, Sudden, strong feeling or expression of an emotion that cannot be controlled. Yeah. Like a spasm, but, but, but emotional, an emotional spasm. Such words, you may imagine, strongly excited my curiosity, but the paroxysm of grief that had seized the stranger overcame his weakened powers and many hours of repose and tranquil conversation were necessary 
to restore his composure. Having conquered the violence of his feelings, he appeared to despise himself for being the slave of passion. And quelling the dark tyranny of despair, he led me again to converse concerning myself personally. He asked me the history of my earlier years. The tale was quickly told, but it awakened various trains of reflection. I spoke of my desire of finding a friend, of my thirst for a more intimate sympathy with a fellow mind than had ever fallen to my lot, and expressed my conviction that a man could boast of little happiness who did not enjoy this blessing. I agree with you, replied the stranger. We are unfashioned creatures. Ooh, again, we are unfashioned creatures. So we're getting into it, right? We're getting into the the nature <clears throat> of life. Unfashioned creatures. And then he says, but half made up. If one wiser, better, dearer than ourselves, such a friend ought to be. Do not lend his aid to perfectionate our weak and faulty natures. I once had a friend, the most noble of human creatures, and am entitled, therefore, to judge respecting friendship. You have hope in the world before you. You have no cause for despair. But I... I have lost everything and cannot begin life anew. So was the friend the creature? Was the friend the thing that he invented? The unfashioned creature half made up? Wiser, better, dearer than himself? Is that what what he had? Is our Boris Karloff idea of Frankenstein utterly misbegotten? As he said this, His countenance became expressive of a calm, settled grief that touched me to the heart. But he was silent and presently retired to his cabin. Even broken in spirit as he is, no one can feel more deeply than he does the beauties of nature. All right, there we are again. Nature, the beauties of it, in its original form the starry sky I'm, I'm reading now i'm not i'm not narrating i mean i'm narrating i'm not extemporizing extemporizing the starry sky the sea and every sight afforded by these wonderful regions still seems to have the power of elevating his soul from earth such a man has a double existence He may suffer misery and be overwhelmed by disappointments. Yet, when he has retired into himself, he will be like a celestial spirit that has a halo around him within whose circle no grief or folly ventures. If you remember in the last episode, he described the figure racing across the ice on the sledge as a daemon or demon, D-A-E-M-O-N. We went to some length to try to figure out what the nature 
of a daemon is. I'm going to return to the pronunciation of daemon just to distinguish it from demon, even though I think it is most correctly pronounced as demon. And what was interesting was discovering that that word did not necessarily mean an evil spirit. No, that word, D-A-E-M-O-N, means a, or or can mean in the Greek originally, um, a being that inhabits the kind of nether space between man and the gods. And the way Walton is describing Frankenstein is exactly that. He will be like a celestial spirit that has a halo around him within whose circle no grief or folly ventures. He has a double existence. He is both man and spirit which is exactly what I believe the creature to be. Frankenstein has, in a sense, by creating this daemon, created a twinned daemon himself. And we're going to see the impact that he has on Walton. So we may have the chain continuing. It's like that movie whose name I cannot remember and do not desire to look up. But I believe it starred Denzel Washington, and he was tracking down a demon. And the demon would transmit itself by touch from person to person to person. So you'd have like a normal person, they'd get infected with this demon, and then they'd do evil shit. And then they would touch somebody else, and the demon would pass into another body. And he somehow had to catch this demon. I might be getting the story wrong, but for the purposes of this uh, analogy, who cares? Like, precision has never been my strong suit, never will be. Let's just assume I'm correct because it works for the analogy. So that's what this is like. Frankenstein is, uh, is like the demon creator. Whomever he touches becomes a daemon, inhabits a nether space between the gods and man. It, he, he has figured out how to essentially conquer nature, but in doing so has brought himself only misery and grief. I want to go back for a second to, if I may, this beginning, the very beginning of this book, right? Wasn't there a Prometheus? Something about Prometheus? Did I get this wrong? Ah, yes, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. And we talked about how Prometheus, and so remember, Prometheus is Greek too. So when we talked about how, um, you know, Mary Shelley could have chosen the word demon, the way we know it, D-E-M-O-N, or daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N, she went with daemon, the Greek. Um... And I'm just going to refresh everybody's memory of what Prometheus did. Stole fire, yes, um, but also brought life. Was the person who, wait, I'm going to, I want to, brought life, brought life. I'm just back, I'm back on the, uh, I'm back on the research machine. Prometheus is a culture hero and trickster figure who was credited with the creation of humanity from clay and defies the gods by stealing fire 
and giving it to humanity as civilization. So this is really well thought out, you know? I mean, I guess, you know, any novel should be, but, you know, you think about a 17-year-old writing this shit. And yeah, she fucked up with the Coleridge thing, but I think we're going to have to forgive her because she really is writing a modern Promethean tale. That's exactly what this is. She has created a modern Prometheus. A culture hero and trickster figure creates humanity from clay, from the stuff of the earth, and suffers a fate. So, back to the book. He's, you know, writing to his sister Maggie. Will you smile at the enthusiasm I express concerning this divine wanderer? You would not if you saw him. You have been tutored and refined by books and retirement from the world, and you are therefore somewhat fastidious. But this only renders you the more fit to appreciate the extraordinary merits of this wonderful man. Sometimes I have endeavored to discover what quality it is which he possesses that elevates him so immeasurably above any other person I ever knew. I believe it to be an intuitive discernment, a quick but never failing power of judgment, a penetration into the causes of things, unequaled for clearness and precision. Add to this a facility of expression and a voice whose varied intonations are soul-subduing music. And that is the end of his love letter regarding Frankenstein to his sister, Mrs. Saville, back there in London town. And that is as good a place as any to conclude this episode. We are getting further into the muck of creation, the creation of a friendship. More than that, like a deeper companionship, a love right? He is in love with Frankenstein. I'm not going to go to homoeroticism here because I don't think anything indicates that yet. Will it? Will we get there? Perhaps. Or is this the apprehension? Is this? So this is my question. Is this relationship, the apprehension of love, uh, of a 17-year-old girl looking at kind of romantic friendships, or is this something more than that? Is this, or is this sort of, sort of cultural, uh, culturally relevant to the day? Now, one of the things that I have learned when we were talking about the introduction to this book is, if you recall, when Marlowe, the nom de plume of the author, was writing the introduction, which may have or may not have been written by Mary Shelley's husband, Percy Bysshe. Shelley, they talk about the three people that were there when the creation of the story began, and then the two companions went off hiking in the in the Alps, you know, and yodeling and wearing their lederhosen and drinking their Swiss Miss. But what I have learned is that the the two people who were there with Mary Shelley were Percy Bysshe Shelley, or Bysshe, I guess I should say Shelley, and Lord Byron, both, you know great poets of the day, I would be curious to learn more about the relationship between Shelley and 
Brian, right? I'm not saying there's anything untoward about it by any means. I'm not saying that at all. But I just wonder whether Shelley observed this kind of bosom, if they had a similar bosom companionship. Why wouldn't they? They're both celebrated poets of the day. It's a question for a later episode. I do want to get a little bit into the poetry of Shelley and Brian. I mean, why not, right? We're here. Like, we drove all this way. We might as well see the sights. Why don't you pull the car over and see the sights? We drove all this way. You don't want to see the sights? What do we... Why did we take this vacation if we're not going to stop and see the sights? You're just in such a rush to get through Frankenstein. You don't want to see the sights. What's the matter with you? You know, that's sort of how I'm feeling. So, we'll get into all this shit. Because look, just like with Frankenstein, I have no interest in reading the poetry of Lord Byron. That sounds like a bore, but who knows? I'm wrong about everything else. Why not be wrong about this? So, we'll continue our journey on the next scintillating episode of Frankenstein. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original music by Craig Wedrin. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. There you will find every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. These episodes are released weeks before they are released to the general public in a addition, you can also find writings, musings, erotica, and bonus episodes. Bonus episodes which sometimes involve Frankenstein and sometimes involve things entirely different, often with guest stars. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Very reasonably priced too, I might add.